everyone. Welcome to the next episode of Fully Free with Ashley. I'm so sorry that it's taken me so long to get my next recording done. I've just been super busy with life as life happens. And I also decided that I'm not doing any introduction like usual. This is my new introduction. I'm just going to go off the top of my head. This podcast is really about healing in every way, wellness, women's health, Uh, And today's topic, which I'm super, super excited about, is hypothalamic amenorrhea. So the absence of your menstrual cycle as a woman due to overstress. And I have a wonderful guest tonight with us, Dr. Nicola Rinaldi. She is an author and she has a PhD and she is very well versed on this topic. I can't wait for you to hear more from her so I will introduce her soon and I just want to thank you to everyone who supported me with this podcast as I continue to develop it I'm super grateful for you all okay everyone so I'm here with Dr. Nicola Rinaldi she's just going to take a moment to introduce herself and tell us a bit about what she's up to sure thanks so much for having me Ashley um So I published the book, No Period, Now What, in 2016, so almost four years ago, which is unbelievable. Um, And that was kind of the culmination of my personal experience and then being on a message board with a few hundred other women that were also experiencing hypothalamic amenorrhea, um, which is a period that has gone missing because of suppression of your hypothalamus, which is a major control center in your brain. Um, So I learned a ton through my own journey and then just chatting with all these other women and I'm a research scientist so I went and did a bunch of scouring of the medical literature to understand more about sort of the underlying causes of the amenorrhea and understanding how and why recovery works. and so, uh, you know, I just kept, I, I kept researching anytime somebody would ask a question, I would go look it up in the medical literature and eventually got to a point where people on the board were saying, you know, you know so much, you should write a book. And I realized, yeah, I should, because I'd never pictured myself as an author, but I had something to say. In fact, I had a lot of something to say because the book ended up being 550 pages. Um, Amazing. So it's. <laughs> You know, it's not something that I ever envisioned myself doing. It was sort of like way outside of my career path, but uh, found that it's something I'm so passionate about um, because there's so much misinformation and really helping people to understand their bodies and um, the ways in which you can recover from this condition and the ways that society has um, sort of sent us down the wrong path and the ways doctors send us down the wrong path. Uh, So, you know, it all kind of, it's all kind of culminated in now um, working with women one-on-one to help them recover periods and get pregnant, and it's the most fulfilling job I've ever had, and uh, yeah, so I, I love it, and I really appreciate the chance to talk with your audience and introduce more people to this and spread the messages, so. Yay, yeah, no, thank you so much for volunteering your time to just chat with me. It actually feels kind of like a celebrity talk or something, because I'm like, oh my god, <laughs> Because I came across your book when I was uh, trying to figure out why my period was missing. And yeah, I came across, I think, your Facebook page first. And then that was how I found like the link to that book. And then I bought the book. And it really opened my eyes to like, wow, there's so much, like you said, misconceptions about um, like what's healthy, what it means to be fit, like tying all into like diet culture and the ideal 
in quotation marks, like female body. Um, so that's amazing that you get to like really do what you love and help so many people with that. Because I think I see so much more of it now, especially with social media, so many more women like talking about what they've been experiencing and like, it's way more than I would have ever expected. Um, so I just wanted to ask first, um, what are some of like the causes of hypothalamic amenorrhea? So what would you tell people the causes are of missing periods in women? So I would say that the major cause is underfueling. Um, so not eating enough to support all of the things that your body does on a daily basis. Um, it can also include uh, restriction of different types of food. Um, that often leads to underfueling, whether intentional or not. For example, somebody that become, decides to become a vegan um, or decides to go low carb, uh, which are some common things for people to do these days. Um, it's really easy to eat um, to just end up underfueling, especially especially if you've if you've decided to change to a plant based diet because plants don't have a lot of energy in them, so you have to eat a lot in, or you have to be very mindful about getting adequate fat and protein um, in order to really keep your um, you know to keep up your energy keep up with your energy needs. So that's sort of the biggest driver. It's often um, in concert with a fair bit of exercise. Um, but one of the things I did for my book was I did a survey of the women on the board that I was that I was telling you about earlier. So I had over 300 women answer a questionnaire about all sorts of things related to AJ. Um, so some of the some of the information I have in the book, um, and I also have an information sheet available for download on my website. Um, that's just at noperiod.info/aj. And um, so I share information about body size of women that have HA because often people think, oh, it's only something that happens to women who are incredibly thin or women who exercise for hours a day. Um, And that's not really true. It can be associated, there are women that do absolutely no exercise that have HA, and there are women who do up to like two or three hours a day of exercise. Um, So that was actually the case for me. I, I sort of got to a place where I was exercising a couple hours every day because I was, my husband was a consult, financial software consultant, so he was traveling four or five days a week. So I was in grad school and I enjoyed what I was doing. So I was playing ice hockey and squash and volleyball and lifting weights and I would bike into Cambridge. And so it ended up being about two hours a day, um, which I think would actually have been fine until I decided that I needed to lose some weight. So I cut my calories significantly. And the combination of the underfueling and the high intensity exercise that I was doing was just way too much for my body. Um, so often there's an exercise component like that. Uh, mental stress also plays a part um, because the stress increases levels of cortisol and other stress hormones that can suppress the hypothalamus, which like I said, is the, the control center. It controls um, a whole bunch of different things that your body does, including your reproductive system. It controls how your body is using energy, it controls um, your uh, your I'm thinking, pituitary glands. <laughs> yeah. That's okay. I'm blanking a little bit. That's okay. Um, it controls your thyroid. Um, it secretes um, a hormone called ABH, antidiuretic hormone, which controls sort of the water balance in your body. So the hypothalamus does a huge amount of a huge number of things. Um, so stress also plays a role. It can be, you know, I think. We've all heard of women that have lost their periods through periods through times of acute stress, so like loss of a loved one or um, you know a move, that kind of thing. 
but chronic stress can also be an issue. And then in concert again with underfueling and exercise, the, the three components can kind of act what's called synergistically. So they sort of amplify each other. Um, so chronic stress can be something that you experience in your life from like a job or a school. Um, it can also be things like controlling your food every day. So mm -hmm. tracking all you know, tracking your food intake in an app and um, you know, saying I can't have more than X number of calories and thinking about food all day, that ends up actually being stressful as well. So it's sort of it's sort of like this big bucket of food ex food exercise and energy control um, that often leads to to HA, which is how we abbreviate hypothalamic amenorrhea. This is that's a Long not. word. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember when I actually first emailed you, we talked a bit about hockey because I play hockey too, but that was like a long time ago. Yeah. I love that so much. And um, yeah, just going back to your talking about plant-based diets, actually every time that I kind of fell back into the loophole was when I was trying to be a vegan. So every, yeah. every single time that my period went missing was when I wasn't eating any meat and I definitely was under fueling, but I didn't want to admit that to myself. I was like, oh, but like I look more fit now than I did before and like I don't need to eat more like it must be something else I must be stressed or like it must be PCOS but even when I think I had or like I think I have PCOS which to everyone listening that's another syndrome it's called polycystic ovarian syndrome and I always had a period when I was wondering if I had that it wasn't until I started restricting too much and dieting and trying to positively affect um, other parts of things related to polycystic ovarian syndrome like um uh, I was breaking out a bit and um what else was I having yeah breaking out in kind of mood swings and stuff and I started to learn about PCOS so could you just give a little introduction to like how PCOS might play a like a role in not a role in HA but how it relates to HA or when there's a crossover yeah, yeah absolutely so there is a chapter in my book that is specifically about this. It's called HA versus PCOS, um, and that's also another free download from my website because I think it's really important for women to understand the difference between the two conditions um, and to be diagnosed accurately because there are a lot of um, a lot of things that you are told if you have PCOS, which are not necessarily true, but the sort of common um, way of treating it is to say you should exercise more and you should lose weight and you should cut out your carbs and all of those are completely the opposite of what you want to do if you have HA. Mm -hmm. um, so that download is available at noperiod.info slash H-A-V-S-E-C-O-S. Um, so it's, it's, actually a, it's actually a tricky question because the, the, two, the two conditions are both diagnoses of exclusion, mm -hmm. which means that you're basically you come to the, the diagnosis by ruling out everything else. Um, so it's a little tricky when you have two diagnoses of exclusion. Yeah, it's like which one, like how do they re relate and... So um, in my mind there are, so there are three specific criteria for diagnosing PCOS. That one is uh, lack of a menstrual cycle or what's called oligomenorrhea, which is having menstrual cycles that are more than 35 days apart. Um, obviously, if you have hypothalamic amenorrhea, you are also missing your menstrual cycle. So that, number one, is checked off by both conditions. Mm -hmm. um, number two is polycystic ovaries when you do an ultrasound. Um, the definition of polycystic ovaries that has been uh, validated most recently is having more than 25 follicles on one ovary or having an ovarian volume of more than 10 cubic centimeters. 
So women that have HA often do have what are called multi-cystic ovaries, which is where you have a lot of follicles, but probably not rising to the level of 25. It might be 15 to 20, though. So if a doctor isn't aware of this distinction, they'll often just look at the ultrasound and say, oh, that looks polycystic without actually counting. And there you go. If you have the amenorrhea and the polycystic ovaries, boom, you're all of a sudden diagnosed with PCOS. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of where the danger often comes in is if that ultrasound isn't interpreted correctly. Um, the third criterion is hyperandrogenism. So that is um, either physical symptoms of an excess of what are sort of sort of to be the typical quote unquote male hormones um, like testosterone, for example, um, or having that biochemically. So doing blood work and seeing an elevated level of free testosterone um, elevated androstenedione, elevated DHEAS, all of those would be sort of blood work symptoms of having PCOS. So the physical symptoms um, are often cystic acne that's not, um, that's not easily treatable by over-the-counter medication, um, excess body hair, um, sort of facial hair, hair on your chest. Um, it's not just one or two. It's typically a lot more than that if you have bona fide PCOS. Mm-hmm. Um, and then insulin resistance, which again is that's another thing that's sort of measured through blood work. It's not something that you manifest physically. Yeah. Um, so I would never, in a woman that has been controlling her eating, exercising a lot, might have some stress in her life, diagnose PCOS unless there was also the blood work to go along with it Mm -hmm. because um, you know typically HA does trump PCOS in the sense that your hormone levels will will likely be suppressed um, if you have HA uh, versus in PCOS your LH will probably be high your luteinizing hormone um, your estradiol will probably be high Free testosterone will be high, um, sex hormone binding globulin, which um, is a, a protein that binds a lot of those hormones, will be low, which leads to the high free testosterone. Mm-hmm. In women with HA, the sex hormone binding globulin is often high. Um, so just looking at some of those differences can help you distinguish between the two conditions. Um, but again, it is it is really important to take lifestyle into account as well, mm-hmm. um, and then looking at the blood work, looking at you know whether hormones are suppressed or if they're normal um, in concert with the amenorrhea and what the ultrasound looks like, um, and you know certainly what the androgens look like on the blood work. Yeah, thank you so much for that because even when I was first going through like my missing period and trying to understand, I, I listened to like a bunch of your podcasts and I was looking at PCOS and I was like trying to distinguish between the two. And it's been a couple of years cause it's like each year for the last three years, I lost my period a few times. And it was when I was dieting, controlling more, restricting more. And it was, ironically it was when I, I was actually exercising less, but doing a lot of hot yoga. So like that probably played a role in it. But um, I'm starting to realize now that a lot of my test results point more towards HA like and I've also met other women who have the same thing and have slightly elevated androgens but mm-hmm. they dieted or had an eating disorder and were athletes like whether competitive or just like weightlifting type of athletes like whatever it was um so I, I think I'm, I'm going through tests right now and like seeing specialists finally it took so long though because I was in a normal body weight and like doctors yeah. were just like oh it's fine my one doctor was like oh just eat more like because she knew I had an eating problem I'm like yeah like okay thanks <laughs> but can I have a referral because I want to know like what, what I actually need to do so I don't make it up by myself 
Yeah. So I think this is really helpful for people that are trying to figure it out that might be listening to this, even just random people, because I would come across your podcast by just, like, typing your name in, like, mm-hmm. podcast search bars, <laughs> you know? So I think one really important thing about what you just mentioned there is that weight is not a diagnostic criterion for either HA or PCOS. Yes. So it, it is often used by doctors in that manner. Like, they will look at somebody and say, oh, you don't look like you have HA, so therefore it must be PCOS, or, oh, you're, you know, you're really thin, so you can't have PCOS. So I think it's really important that the weight is not playing a part in the di- in the diagnosis at all. Mm-hmm. Um, you can have either condition at a range of body sizes. Um, you know, it might be the case that HA is women with HA tend to be in smaller bodies, but it's certainly not a hard and fast rule. Um, and there's no sort of magic number below which you have HA and above which you don't have HA. So I've seen HA in a wide range in a women with a wide range of BMIs, um, and same thing with PCOS. So I think staying away from using weight as a criterion. Now, weight loss does tend to be more indicative of HA because it indicates fairly serious underfueling. Mm-hmm. So if you are in a given body size and you lost, you know, some percentage of your body weight then you probably did that by cutting your calories, by tracking your macros, by cutting out various food groups, all of which is going to suppress your hypothalamus. So if you've lost weight, certainly recently, even in the less, you know, even in the more distant past, that you can still, your body can still sort of sense that you have had that weight loss. And, you know, you may have been under fueling ever since you lost weight, um, you may be fueling appropriately, um, possibly, but if you're missing your period, then you're probably not fueling your body as much as it needs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. So true. And even just the, there needs to be such a change in in the in the medical approach to things because even when like the the way doctors approach weight often is like, oh, you need to lose weight, and it, a lot of times there's recommendations for women to lose weight by drastically dieting and like that can lead to so many other problems like it's not it's not right and I think it's really important that we bring awareness to that too so thank you for speaking more to that I think that's so important yeah I mean the the weight loss can cause so many issues you know and a lot of them sort of are manifested as symptoms of HA so Mm -hmm. things like brittle hair uh sorry brittle nails hair that's falling out um no vaginal lubrication, uh, lack of any libido, um, you know, it can cause performance issues, um, it can cause digestive issues. I know a lot of women who end up with some kind of IBS or sort of chronic bloating, chronic constipation after they have cut their food intake, and mm-hmm. it's often a slippery slope because you go on a diet, you lose some weight, you're you start feeling worse when you eat certain foods, and so you cut those yeah. foods out, which leads to eat, eating even less and feeling even more crappy. And so it's this, you know, this constant, well, what food should I cut out next? Because certainly there's a lot of um, information online suggesting that foods X, Y, and Z cause all of these digestive issues mm-hmm. and you know, are bad for you, quote unquote. So you know, people are often encouraged to cut them out. Um, and again, that that. And it tends to lead to slippery slope. So a lot of women that I know with HA as they've worked toward recovery have been quite uncomfortable at first, but found that in the longer term, once they are fueling their bodies properly, that they are no longer constipated or bloated, um, don't have the IBS 
symptoms anymore. So that all kind of goes along with this whole, you must diet, you must be teeny tiny, you must be fit, you know, mm-hmm. all of that kind of stuff that we're, we're, we're the messages we're bombarded with every day. No, yeah, and that, that is exactly what happened to me, like, when I was first recovering my, I still have IBS the odd time, but it was, like, pretty bad, like, on a daily basis, and then, like, it would feel better when I didn't eat that much, so I was like, oh, I should just eat, like, less then, and then that just was one thing on top of the other that led me back into the restriction, so it's like a never-ending cycle, unless you, like, yeah. force yourself to get through, like, the really uncomfortable parts of it, yeah. which will keep coming back, which did three times for me, I'm like, this is the last time, I'm not going back again, like, I can't. <laughs> Um, so just talking about how you were saying HA and like the blood work. So how does, um, hypothalamic amenorrhea typically present with blood work, like with the LH and the FSH and. So the best marker for it is typically the LH level, which will tend to be low. It might just be, it might be within the normal range, but on the low side of normal. So what I really think of as normal is sort of six to eight or maybe a bit more. Um, at all, all times during the cycle. Uh, no, okay. so that's sort of a, that's sort of a baseline. Okay. It's somebody that has HA is a baseline all the time, so yeah. you can take blood work at any point. Um, in a woman that's cycling, you typically take it on cycle day three, which is when your hormones are sort of at the low level before everything starts growing. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, so that's six to eight. Uh, truly suppressed is like severely suppressed is an LH level of less than two, and that sort of two is typically the cutoff for quote unquote normal. Um, so anybody that has an LH of less than two, their doctor will probably say, oh, your LH is low. If your LH is between two and five, then your doctor's probably going to tell you it's normal, mm-hmm. but it's not really normal. Um, you know, that tends to indicate some level of hypothalamic suppression. And certainly in a woman that is missing a period, that's a pretty good indicator that you have hypothalamic amenorrhea. Um, or there can be other things that can suppress your reproductive hormones. For example, um, birth control pills will suppress them. So your FSH and LH will probably be low if you're on birth control pills or if you're on hormone replacement therapy, so estradiol plus progesterone. Mm-hmm. Um, so in those cases, your, your FSH and LH levels might be like 0. 0.1, 0. 0.2, 0. 0.5, something like that. Um, if you have high prolactin, that also suppresses those reproductive hormones. So that's another thing that should be checked when somebody's going through the diagnostic process. Mm-hmm. Um, the prolactin is elevated when you're breastfeeding, which is why women that are breastfeeding often don't start cycling until they stop. And, and certainly women that have had HA tend to be more sensitive to the prolactin. Mm-hmm. So they tend to take a longer time to get cycles back after, um, after they have a baby. Um, if you have thyroid issues, that can also suppress your reproductive hormones. So that's another thing that should be checked um, mm-hmm. when you're looking at your TSH levels. But so absent any of those other causes, yeah. having low LH tends to suggest hypothalamic amenorrhea. Um, FSH is typically normal, but can also be a little bit on the low side. If it's low, then that indicates maybe a higher level of hypothalamic suppression mm-hmm. again. Um, and that's that's really all we have to go on. Yeah. So estradiol is often low, but I don't find that that's particularly useful for a diagnosis. Um, you know, I've seen a range of estradiol levels with HA, and it certainly doesn't indicate anything about recovery. It, that tends to stay fairly stable until you actually have a follicle that's starting to grow, which is when the est- estradiol will increase. Okay, awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Um... So when I first got my blood test a few years ago, it was because of my acne. I didn't even know about the connections to hormones or anything. I had a cycle mm-hmm. then, 
pretty regular, didn't think anything of it. And then uh, my doctor told me that I was definitely having a novulatory cycles, um, and which means to everyone listening like that you have a period, but you didn't have a follicle that um, came to fruitation. Um, but uh, my LH was like 0.1 and my FSH was like 1.0 or something. And that was when, yeah. and then my androgens were slightly elevated. So he was like, I think you have a crossover because he knew about my, 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 athletic pursuits and like my soccer and hockey careers uh so yeah it, that was just how it started but I realize now that even on my cause on my recent blood work that I, I have to work more on the HA side of things first which I know oh. you've written about in your book because like you said oh. HA trumps PCOS so if you're if I'm if I or someone else is worried about having both and they're only focusing on PCOS chances are they're restricting having too many diet rules like exercising too much and that will not help you get your period back or help you ovulate yeah absolutely um it's also good to understand that there is some research that suggests that as a woman recovers from ha her androgens might increase a bit Mm -hmm. so um there was a paper that i I have another blog post about this one is ha versus pcos2 so in that paper, they actually found that um, androgens are slightly elevated up to a year after HA recovery. So I actually wouldn't really encourage anybody to think about a PCOS diagnosis mm-hmm. until you've been recovered for at least a year, um, just because it can take a while for your hormones to really balance out properly again after recovery. Um, and certainly, I don't recommend making any other changes like adding exercise or making any dietary changes until you've had at least cycles post HA just because that way you can learn about when you're when you ovulate what your typical ovulation looks like how long your luteal phase is and then you can use that to help you sort of track your body and how it's doing as you go forward and do add back some exercise or make make changes in terms of your eating yes yeah so good and then that just reminded me of like the most important thing of your book um not just kidding just one really important thing like going going all in so I know what this term means. I never actually went all in. I went all in on the side of eating everything, (laughs) but I still kept exercising and I was able to get a period back, but I know that isn't the case for most or many women. Uh, So what are your, like, where, how did you come to this recommendation of going all in? What does that mean? And how do women work towards recovery from HA? So all in uh, officially means eating a minimum of 2,500 calories a day, um, all food groups, so no restrictions in terms of carbs or fat or anything like that, um, unless you have an allergy, in which case, you know, things are a little bit different, um, and then cutting out high-intensity exercise. And those recommendations came about sort of over the years of my being on the board. Um, there's actually a blog a blog post by Gwyneth Olwyn um, mm-hmm. where she talked about 2,500 calories for recovery from eating disorders, um, you, you know, or more if you're hungry for it, obviously. Like, this is this is not Minimum. a ceiling, it's a yeah. floor. Um, <laughs> so I was always a little bit, you know, as a scientist, I like to understand the logic and reasoning behind things. So I saw that, you know, the blog post was saying 2,500 calories for everybody, you know, regardless of, you know, if you're five feet tall or seven feet tall. And I was like, that doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. So, because obviously somebody who is, you know, five feet tall has a lot less lean body mass than somebody who is seven feet tall. So I went and looked in the medical literature and I found um, a couple of different ways of figuring out what somebody's energy needs really are. And these are 
sort of based along the same idea of you know we're we're, we're always told two thousand calories is what a you know what a woman needs on a daily basis. Um, that comes from the idea that in somebody who's at a stable weight, they're burning the same energy that they're taking in. And so they had people do food diaries, and they came up with this 2,000-calorie number. Um, but people are often, you know, not necessarily accurate on their food diaries. Maybe they, uh, you know, tend to not count certain snacks or, you know, what have you, just because there is such a bias in our society mm-hmm. against, um, against eating and against being in a larger body. And so that, you know, people are, tend to be encouraged to not eat as much, and so... Often self-reported things like that, people tend to under, uh, underestimate what they're eating. So in these studies, the, um, they were not self-reported intakes. So um, in, in one method, people were in what's called a whole room calorimeter. And so the energy that they were burning on a daily basis was measured by, you know, they're in this enclosed room and, you know, it measures all the gases that come out and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I mean, like, wow. Um, and so... Based on that, they, they sort of came up with an equation that for somebody who's sort of in energy balance, they're typically getting about 45 calories per kilogram of lean body mass. Um, so I multiply that out in the book, and that comes out to be about 2,500 calories for a woman who's about 5 foot 6 inches tall, 20-ish percent body fat. You know, the, number, the numbers are all in there. It's not super important. It's, yeah. Um, but, you know, so... And then same thing with this other method where they they had people drink what's called doubly labeled water. So it has um, oxygen atoms that are um, slightly radioactive and then hydrogen atoms that are radioactive. And they can use that to, again, calculate how much energy people are burning. So that was a completely different method, um, different equations that kind of came up with the 2,500 calories as well. Um, in my book, I do sort of give a plus minus on, you know, if you're shorter, it might be a little bit less. If you're taller, it might be a little bit more. Um, 2,500 calories is a good estimate. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, again, I think it's important to sort of use that as a guideline just because we're often eating so much less than that that it's it's important for people to realize how much you really do need to mm-hmm. recover. Um, you know, in my case, it was about a thousand, that was about a thousand calories more than I had been eating. Um, and Same. I grew up being yeah. fit even more than that because I was still doing high intensity exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just like it's just to give people a guideline, but I really encourage everyone to get away from the whole calorie counting thing. So you know, you figure out for a day or two how much you're eating. Okay, how much more do I need? Like, what is what does that look like for me to eat 2,500 calories? And then you stop counting and you just eat. And, yeah. You know, you might, you might feel like you're stuffing yourself. Um, you know, that's pretty normal, especially if you have been under eating for a long time. So it's good to figure out ways that you can add in energy without adding a lot of volume. So like tripling the size of your salad, probably not going to work. Yeah. <laughs> you need to do things like add on extra salad dressing, maybe eat some nut butter. Eat, eat dessert. Butter, yeah. You know, desserts. Uh, throw in some avocados. Uh, ice cream is a great fertility food. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe some pizza, you know, all, all the things that we're told were, you know, are quote unquote. Stay away unquote. from. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's all just, it's all food. Your body knows how to digest it. And certainly things like pizza are very energy dense. And so you don't have to eat a lot in order to get the energy that your body needs for recovery. Um, 
And then in terms of the exercise side of things, so again, as part of my survey, I asked people, like, what had you been doing for exercise? What did you do during recovery? Um, I was expecting that it would be total amount of exercise that was related to two-period recovery or not. And I was actually surprised when I analyzed the results that it was really only high-intensity exercise. There was no correlation between the amount of low-intensity exercise people were doing Mm -hmm. and the recovery rate. Um, So my recommendation since then has been to cut out high-intensity exercise. And certainly there's scientific evidence to support that conclusion um, in that uh, high-intensity exercise increases cortisol and other stress-related hormones, which then suppress the hypothalamus, pituitary, and ovaries. So it's like suppression at three levels of the reproductive system. Yeah. Um, So that's sort of where that recommendation stems from. Um, Being perfectly honest, I also did not completely cut out high-intensity exercise when I was working to recover because nobody told me that it would be a good idea. Yeah. I cut down what I was doing by a lot, yeah. um, by, you know, by more than 50%, and I started taking rest days each week. Um, and then when I did uh, when I did get my period the very first time, I was on vacation for three weeks, so I did, you know, I then I really wasn't doing anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's it's a little bit hard to say for sure what, what did it for me, but certainly eating more and, you know, that inevitably leads yes. to gaining some weight. Um, and sort of getting back to the place where my body was happy again. Um, but so, yeah, so all in is eating a minimum of 2,500 calories a day, cutting out high-intensity exercise, and that seems to work quite well for recovery. Um, another question that I asked people for the book was, how long did it take you to get your period back? And for that, the median time was five months. Mm-hmm. So that means half the people were shorter than that and half were longer. More recently, I've been noticing in my Facebook support group that a lot of people seem to be getting this period back much faster than five months. So I did another survey, and um, in this one, the question was a little bit different, asking, since you've been all in, Mm -hmm. how long did it take you to get your period back? And the the median now is down to three months. Awesome. Um, So I think it's because... That was mine, too. Because people have been more aware of what all in means, yeah. they're actually doing it. Whereas, you know, when it, when, I, when I was on the board before, it was like, oh, well, you know, I'll cut my exercise a little bit because there wasn't as much evidence to support uh, going all in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even um, going back to the exercise part, I did stop a lot of my high intensity stuff. So, like, I didn't play hockey, and then that's why I got my period back, and I wasn't doing my like um interval training at all like I still did I still was very active like I went on bike rides every day I rollerbladed I swam but nothing where I was like dying of out of breath other than like I did like one weightlifting workout a week and that was it and um the last time that I just got my period back is actually in August so I I just finished my fourth cycle um this time and yeah I'm very happy about that and um it was funny the the night before it came back I was literally I was writing a blog and I was literally like just at the point where I was so kind of hurt with myself for like how much I've put my body through and I literally wrote a blog about how like I don't care what I have to do to like help my body heal like I don't care if my body changes so much like I don't I'm gonna go through whatever like anxiety provoking things I have to work through like and I just fully accepted it and I woke up in the morning with my period and I was like (laughs) like well it it, it, like I was I, I don't know how to explain it it was just very like wow like I didn't mean it like that but like thank you like I'm ready to keep up with that now. Like, I'm trying. Yep. Yeah. I love that um, so much. And what else did I want to ask? I made, like, a list beside here because I wanted to 
just see where the conversation went and then yeah. uh think about what else oh yeah so since we're just talking about body image stuff like what are some things that you recommend to women that are struggling or even in your book like I know you have a chapter about like women's like uh significant others and how they feel about their weight gain and like what could you talk a bit about that yeah so I think there are a couple things that are really important to do to help yourself when you're working to recover uh number one is stop weighing yourself um because the number actually says literally nothing about your value and it really doesn't I mean there's no important information that you get from that however it sticks in your head all day and it can certainly make you feel like you're doing something wrong because again society tells us that we're supposed to get smaller 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 not bigger and so you know there's just so much um sort of stress and self uh denigration that's sort of wrapped up in that number Mm -hmm. um that I just, I, I just find that there's nothing good that comes out of weighing yourself. Um, some people will say they're weighing themselves to make sure that they're eating enough, but you really don't need to. Mm-hmm. You can tell based on how your clothes fit and how you feel. Um, you may feel a little bit uncomfortable. I mean, certainly for somebody that's had low body fat for a very long time, um, as you gain some weight, some of it will likely be fat, which mm-hmm. is good because you know fat is actually a hormone-producing organ, which people don't always realize, but um, there it, it produces leptin and adiponectin. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, uh, and it's involved in insulin production. So all of those are hormones that are sensed by our hypothalamus and can sort of give our body an idea of are we at what's called our set point or a set range Um, so, you know, it's normal to get a little bit bigger if you've lost weight or if you've been at a very low body fat for a long time. Um, and that can feel uncomfortable if you're not used to it. So things like if you, if you, if you're not used to your thighs rubbing together, for example, that can be really challenging if you're not used to feeling, um, you know, some, uh, jiggle around your middle when you sit down again that, that can be difficult to, to kind of wrap your head around um, in terms of the thigh rubbing together I like to wear bike shorts when I'm wearing a skirt because that way it's not an issue and you know other or, or I wear pants a lot um, so I don't really you know I don't really notice it anymore yeah and it doesn't you know it doesn't bother me um, and sort of going along with that is buying new clothes yes <laughs> Um, you know, if you, especially if you have a lot of fitted clothes, feeling the waistband around your stomach all day is long a bad feeling. Just, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's, also, it's so uncomfortable, and it just keeps you focused all the time on my body is getting bigger. And you know, so stretchy pants, uh, flowy tops, things that you know you can grow into, things that you that you don't have to buy new clothes every couple of weeks, just things that you can um, you know wear for a long time. Uh, I never wear jeans anymore. I, I hate jeans. I wear yoga pants. Uh, <laughs> me too. Me 24/7. Yeah, me too. Right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so that, I think those are some of the things that are that are most helpful. Another thing that really helps is curating your social media feed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we often tend to follow people that are like us. Yes. So if you're a runner, you're following a lot of runners and. They tend to be in small bodies, and they tend to, you know, be showing off all the exercise they're doing. Or maybe you're following vegan bloggers who, you know, post every day about the 
teeny tiny amounts of food that they're eating. Um, all of that is super unhelpful because it kind of leads you to yourself all the time. Mm -hmm. So I really like to follow people in a wide range of body sizes and shapes and colors and genders and uh, gender identities. And, you know, it's really opened my eyes to a lot of things that I was not even aware of, um, you know, in my earlier days before I was doing this work. So it's been not only a journey of sort of helping other people, but certainly this part has been a journey of personal growth as well and understanding the positions that other people are in. Um, and it's been really eye-opening and I think it's um, it's made me a better person. I hope it has. And, you know, I'm continuing to learn and grow. I mean, obviously none of us is ever sort of perfect. You know, mm -hmm. there's always more to learn from people. So I think really looking to expand your worldview in terms of what you're what social media you're consuming, I think makes a huge difference as well, because, um, you know, realizing that people are happy in all different body sizes, and people are healthy in all different body sizes, and, uh, you know, it, it's, it takes the focus away from what you look like, which is such a small part of who we actually are, mm -hmm. and helps you focus more on the things that you can accomplish in this world, which is so much more important and meaningful, and, um, it's it's just uh it's something you have a lot more control over as well which is a, a good feeling so yeah I love that so much yeah especially I really relate to social media because I talk about this all the time too just the fact that social media was coming out when I was like coming into high school like but what about all the young people now that are really young and like seeing so much so young like photoshop bodies like I know we saw magazines when we were young but it's so much more concentrated and available now and then yeah. it's just, as we get older, we just keep holding on to the same, like, negative conceptions about things. Like, even before talking about calories, like, I, I a number in my head is 1,500 calories. Like, that's how much you yeah. should have to, like, be fit. And that still pops up for me all the time. And I'm like, I don't, I'm very active. That, that, I read, like, some picture that was like, that's, like, to feed a child that doesn't move, like, at the age yeah. of four or something. And it's just crazy that. We, we get so brainwashed into things on social media and what, what we're taking in in our minds that we think is normal. Mm -hmm. It's just, yeah, it's upsetting when you actually take the time to, like, analyze what you're allowing yourself to believe. And then yeah. just, just going off that, like, I always think when I think about someone I really care about or someone I enjoy spending time with, and I look at them, I don't look at them and say, like, oh, I don't like that on their body or, like, this shape of them or, like, so why do we do that so much to ourselves? Like, we're so hard on ourselves in the mirror so just yeah having little that is, such, that is such a great point we are so hard on ourselves and uh you know really nobody else is I mean people can people make comments about bodies like yes. if you um and that can be that can be a hard part in recovery as well mm -hmm. um especially if you're trying to get pregnant and you know your belly gets bigger and then people start asking you are you pregnant which mm -hmm. you know it's just that you, sh you should never <laughs> ask that question. Let, let, let somebody tell you that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the filter. If they don't want to tell you, then it's none of your business, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, so things, things like that can be, can be really challenging as well. Um, and I think it's good to sort of think about some ways that you might respond if somebody says something like that to you. Um, 
you know, often people are not saying things, you know, not making comments, thinking of them in a negative way. It's usually a positive, like, oh, you look really healthy. Like, that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can take that to mean, oh, you know, you've gotten bigger and, you know, everyone's noticing and that's a bad thing because society tells us that being a bigger body is not desirable. Um, you know, and there's just so much work to do around that area. But sort of thinking about ways like, oh, you know, I really prefer to focus on, you know, I'm doing this cool new thing. Let me tell you about that. Or, you know, finding ways to kind of pivot away from uh, comments that focus on your body size, shape, and, you know, anything like that. Yeah, I, I think that's super important too. And then I don't know if you have any experience with this, but um, I've noticed for my own, like, healing journey that I've found, like, journaling really helpful, like, writing down how I'm feeling, like, what's improved. Um, I Like, for instance, sleep was really bad for me when I was under eating. Yeah. I was, like, waking up at 4 a.m., like, every morning, and, like, I would stay up, and I wasn't even working then. I just graduated university. I would just be awake and, like, unable to fall back asleep, and then I went to a naturopath, and they were, like, well, they, they related to, like, probably underfueling, and my body's probably waking me up to eat, like, blood sugar stuff, all of that. And there's, like, every system and every single thing in our body is connected. And even just the thoughts in, in our heads that, like, are talking about counting calories and not being good enough or having to eat less or having to compensate for what you just ate, I feel like it totally affects the physical production of our hormones, like, our stress response, everything. So, yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. So I'm, I am not like a journaler, a meditator, anything like that. But I know that for a lot of people, that's really helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think people recommend the Headspace app to listen to before you go to bed. Yeah. To kind of calm your mind. Um, so yeah, definitely taking, you know, figuring out what works for you in terms of coming to terms with making changes and maybe not being the, you know, the best runner anymore or the fittest person in the CrossFit room or, you know, sort of having identity changes mm-hmm. like that can be yes. really challenging. So, um, you know, not only journaling about it, find, but finding other things to do to occupy your time, um, spending more time with people that you enjoy being around can be really helpful. Um, you know, social interactions often help keep us happy and yeah. um, well-nourished spiritually. Um Speaking of spiritually, you know, maybe if you're somebody who does you know, follow a certain religion, you, you know, spending more time going to church or the mosque or the, um, you know, the, uh, there are other words, you know. Yes, I know what you mean. <laughs> you know yes. I mean. <laughs> Any religion, yeah. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I agree. Like, just even whether people have HA or not, having, like, such a strict exercise routine and feeling like you always have to go to the gym or always have to get your workout in just takes so much away from your ability to connect. Like, I used to cancel plans all the time because I, like, overate or, like... And I didn't know back then either that I... I think sometimes overeating was emotional, but a lot of the times it was because I was under-fueling and then my body was just, like, feed me right now, like, extreme hunger. So I actually meant to ask about that earlier, but have you... I like talk to a lot of women going through through HA recovery who experience extreme hunger. Yes, for sure. Because I think any time that our body has been, our fuel has been restricted for a long time, and then we let go a little bit, our bodies tend to be like, "Give me all the food." Yeah. Like I had, I mean, you you probably have years of underfueling to make up for. So it it it's perfectly natural for your body to kind of take advantage of that because. It doesn't know that now if things have changed and you're actually going to fuel it properly for the rest of your life, hopefully. Um, 
So extreme hunger tends to be very common at the beginning of recovery. And that can be really scary too, because again, we're sort of told, oh, don't overeat, don't binge, don't, Mm -hmm. you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, And so there's so many negative connotations and there's so much shame around eating a lot of food. And we just have to think of it. We're just fueling our body. We're providing our body with the fuel that it needs and wants and um, making up for so many years or months or days of restriction, um, you know, it's not at all surprising that our bodies sort of behave like that. Um, and it does tend to sort of even out in, you know, maybe it's a few days, maybe it's a few weeks, maybe it's a month, maybe, you know, something like that. Yeah. Um, it's different for, it's different for every person, but certainly, um, you know, it's a common it's a common response and feeling, and it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong. It certainly doesn't mean that you should start restricting again because that's just going to make things worse. Um, so you kind of have to just ride with it and really um, be kind to yourself and get out of the mindset that eating is bad and eating is unhealthy because really it's completely the opposite. You are providing your body with the energy that it needs to breathe, to pump your blood, to make protein and DNA, um, to build your bones. That's a huge one. Yeah, I was, I was just going to ask about that. have um, decreased bone density, and you know, that can be a big problem you know, in the short and long term. Um, so you know, thinking of the fuel in terms of what it's doing for your body as opposed to all of the negative connotations that society has put on it, I think is, can be helpful in, the, in those times. Um, and certainly if you're struggling with eating more and you're struggling with feelings, uh, negative feelings about yourself for eat, for doing that, um, you know, going to see a therapist is never a bad idea. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, it, it can really be helpful to have somebody else to sort of talk through these uh, emotions and feelings and, you know, um, kind of help guide you in terms of, you know, more self-care and um, less self-hatred. Um, and of course... There are therapists who are not good fits. Yeah. Um, you know, I was recently speaking with somebody, and she said that her therapist told her she shouldn't be eating that amount of food. And I'm like, why is your therapist talking to you about the number of calories you should be eating? Like, that is completely outside the realm of their expertise. Yeah. And, uh, you know, let's... Not go there. Let's stay in our lane. Yeah. Because <laughs> what we know, like... I'm not a therapist, so, you know, I, if, if somebody's struggling with that kind of thing, then I will send them to somebody else, because that is not what I do, and I'm not going to pretend that I'm good at it, so, <laughs> you know, it, it is, it is crazy, though, because even, even in eating disorder recovery, like, from anorexia or any type, or, like, not otherwise specified, or even bulimia, where there, um, there's, like, a meal plan or, like, a certain number of calories you should eat, then there's, like, oh, don't eat t- too much more than that, though, because then you're binging, and it's, like, I, yeah. I don't, understand how all the research shows that binging in quotation marks again is not binging in recovery it's literally extreme hunger your body needs that for the years and years or however long you restricted of deficit um so yeah like some therapists just like I don't think that encourages full recovery in any way especially the mental side because even me like I got my period back twice but I I'm still working through the mental part right now because I might have I might have a period back for the third time but I still sometimes go backwards in how I think and how I act and what I'm doing with my with my with myself. So it, yeah. it's an ongoing like it's an everyday choice. Yeah, yeah. I think that's I think that's a really great point about um, 
recovery from an eating disorder, so I'm not an eating disorder recovery specialist mm-hmm. by any means. Um, and again, for somebody who's experiencing a current eating disorder, I think it's really important to get a good treatment team and you know be working with the doctor. And um, I just pause because it says my internet connection is unstable, and it looks like you froze for a second. Yeah, you froze for a second too, but I think it's working again. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, you're not an eating disorder recovery specialist, yeah. Um, but a lot of women that have technically recovered from eating disorders end up not being all the way there. They have, they still have hypothalamic amenorrhea. Mm-hmm. So recovering from that is kind of the last step. It's really letting go of the food, letting go of the idea that there is a quote-unquote healthy weight and going beyond that is not okay. Um, Because often in eating disorder recovery, um, women are told, oh, get to this X weight and then, you know, stop there. And, you know, that, that kind of prescription of a place where you're now healthy without necessarily having gotten all the way to getting your period back um, you know, I, I think that that does, that does people a, a big disservice and it should be, um, you know, you should eat enough so that your body can get to the weight that it naturally wants to be at. Mm-hmm. And that's often the place where you get your period back and, you know, your bone density improves and, you know, all of the other symptoms of underfueling tend to improve. Yeah. Um, that's so good. And then even just, yeah, just going off that, like thinking about, how there's so much diversity in the world in terms of like skin color, religion, like background, whatever. Like if you look around, there's so much body diversity as it is. Even if we all did the same workout and ate the same food every day, we mm-hmm. would never look the same. So like, yeah. why do we all try to look like one supermodel that we see? Or like, whether it's subconscious or conscious, like whether we think we're not good enough because, I don't know, we have the jokes about like I have a, a dad bot or a mom bot or like whatever, whatever the joke is at the time, you know, just the yeah. comparisons and everything. It's just... It, it can be lighthearted, but then to actually have some awareness around, like, the messages we're projecting out there and also projecting onto children and all of that, I think, yeah. is really, really powerful when you actually take the time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's such a wide range of people's sizes in terms of height, and that seems to be accepted. I don't yeah. really understand why we're all supposed to be the same shape yeah. and uh, size, you know, in terms of our, um, you know... Our, our, our body weight yeah, yeah it's, it's just a little ridiculous <sighs> I know okay oh my God. <laughs> so funny okay I'm just <laughs> laughing I'm just thinking about it's actually funny when you detach yourself like emotionally from it and you're like that actually makes no sense how we think yeah. but we yeah. still think like that all the time and it can literally yeah. run our lives if we don't like change the, the loop that we're in mm-hmm. um and then just moving on like I'm almost at the end like I didn't even need to really look at my chart that much because I feel like our conversation just flowed and kind of covered everything that I really wanted to get out there in the world about HA and PCOS a little um but what have you found like for yourself and then maybe other women that have worked with you like what is on the other side of like like the freedom that's found on the other side of recovering from HA it's so worthwhile I mean Having a body that is functioning the way it should just feels amazing. And being able to get pregnant, um, you know, if that's what you desire, you know, you can't get pregnant if you're not getting a period. 
Um, but even beyond that, just knowing that you are fueling your body and you're doing what you can to be truly healthy, you know, not health as prescribed by the fitness magazines, but health for yourself. Um, and learning, having learned about how meaningless some of the food and exercise rules are and how much we let them control our lives unnecessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I love exercise. I love playing ice hockey. I really enjoy lifting weights and feeling strong. Um, and I do that now. I do it when I want to because I enjoy it. If mm-hmm. I feel sick, I don't go. If I, you know, if I'm tired, I don't go. If I feel like, you know, if I just don't feel like going, I you don't just don't go. go. Yeah. And I know that I'm not going to all of a sudden fall apart into a pile of skin and bones. You know, it's just some of the, um, you know, some of, I feel like there's this idea that if we don't exercise every day, we're going to just be, I, I don't even know. It's like, what is the negative of not exercising every day? It's, I know. I, I, I had the same, mine was really like, I don't even know how I used to think like that. I don't know how I exercised so much because I didn't like it. It got to a point where it was a chore, but I was like, so many fears about like, oh my God, my body's going to change so much. I'm not going to look good anymore. Like all of those fears like ran my life and I missed so many things. Like I missed weekend road trips or like concerts or last minute plans because I'd be like, no, oh my God, I can't miss my workout. Like, yeah. Yeah. And I think that freedom and incorporating exercise into your life instead of it being your life, it's just, it's magical and it's really... I think it's one of the things that women that have recovered from HA appreciate the most. Um, and, you know, same thing around food. You know, it's fun to eat and food tastes good. And spending so much time and energy on thinking about, oh, I can't have this and I can't have that. And, you know, rather than just enjoying the food that's in front of you and enjoying the company that you're with and, um, you know, living your life. I mean, I think that's really the key thing is recovery from HA is about living your life instead of letting your life run you or letting, mm-hmm. your, letting your food and your exercise control everything. Um, it's, you know, it's, there's so much more out there that you can be doing when you're not spending all that mental and physical energy on um, controlling your body and controlling your size and just, yeah. No, and I love that because it ties perfectly with why I named, like, this podcast Fully Free with Ashley because, like, I'm only – HA is one topic, but it's, like, what's kept me away from the opportunity to be free for so long. So, like, that's why I really have started with, like, my history with an eating disorder, what I'm going through now. And for so long I was, like, oh, I, I'll start this when I'm, like, everything's perfect and that it's all okay and, like, I, I like and I don't know when I'll ever get there. Maybe I'll never be – I don't think I'll never, I'll never be perfect, but – like the conception in your head of when you think you're ready. I was just like, I'm just going to start it now because I'm still going through stuff. I'm still g- getting help when I need it, but I still want to get the message out there and also show people that it's okay to talk about what they're going through when you're still going through it, not only yeah. when you're done yeah, or when you've That's overcome it. It's time to talk about it because you can, you know, getting support around you and getting help is, you know, you don't need to do everything by yourself. Yeah. You know. I think it's really important to so I think that's one of the really nice things about my Facebook support group yes there are so many other women in there that can relate to what you're going through that can pick you up when you're feeling down um that can encourage you when you feel like you need like you can't do this anymore um 
So I think that that's one really, really cool thing about that group. Um, and I hope that anyone that's listening that's going through this will join. Um, so that's at noperiod.info slash support. Um, so yeah, please come join us. Yes, go join. Here. I'm in there too. I'm still in yeah. there. And it's been, it's been very helpful every single time. I literally search things in the search bar or I just ask something when I want a clarification or other people's experiences. So it's been so great. That was the first, my first introduction, like I said to you. So yes. Well, do you have anything else you want to say just at the end? Like, what are you up to now? Like, are you working on anything new? Are you doing any other surveys or research or? Um, I have umpteen million things that I want to do. And so at the moment I'm um, feeling a little bit overwhelmed and doing none of them. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. Not really an effective way of moving forward. Um, But so, yeah, I do, I do want to do another survey actually, because I do think that sort of, now that my book has been out there for a long time, well, almost four years. That's amazing, yeah. Um, you know, I have, there's a much broader pool of women and that, that, that I can kind of draw from, and so I, I want to update some of the things like the, um, the range of body sizes at which people experience HA because I think that is a really important message to have out there. So yeah. I'm hoping to do another more detailed survey and then publish it in a medical journal. Um, so that's one of the things I, I want to do. I'm working with um, a couple of dietitians, um, Fiona Sutherland and Laura Moretti, on a an HA course for dietitians um, and perhaps for medical professionals as well. Oh, that's so good! I think that, um, that you know there's a lot of misunderstanding of HA in the medical world and a lot of you know, misdiagnosis and certainly telling people, oh, just take the birth control pills or you know do hormone replacement therapy, and you know those are band aids. They do not fix problem so mm-hmm. I think sort of getting um, you know putting together a way for people to learn more and um, hopefully understand better how your know, actual recovery happens and that it does and can happen because I've had I, I've talked to women who doctors have told oh like you could gain x pounds and you'll never get your period back or, yeah or you'll you never get pregnant is broken it's never gonna work again it's like that is so not true I mean the recovery rate is over 98 percent um so you know giving people misinformation like that is just there's so much hope for recovery and i really would like the medical community to be more aware of that so i think those are those are two of the big things that i'm working on at the moment yay i can't wait for that that's awesome i'll definitely if you ever write another book too i'll definitely buy it I just like, I just like, the book was so comforting because like, when I first, I was just like, where do you find all this information? I was reading blogs on eating yeah. disorders and all that and like just Googling everything random and like that the book kind of tied everything in together really nicely. So anyone who's struggling with a missing period or, or exercise, like over exercise and you think you might have HA, the Facebook group is a great place to start and then definitely recommend No Period Now What, the book to read. Thank you. Yeah. And yeah, that's about it. I can't believe we talked for over an hour, but thank you. Like, I really, really appreciate it from the bottom of my heart that you like, uh, I was gonna say donated, but gave up your time to talk about this and spread the message. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, um, it makes me really happy to get the information out there and educate more people and hopefully, um, you know, make some changes in our society. Like I think that really understanding how important fueling is versus, being a certain body size I think is you know worthwhile so yeah me too okay thank you so much and then we'll catch up soon again I'm sure sounds good okay take care bye
Okay, everyone. So there you have it. That was such an amazing conversation. I really can't believe that an hour passed because I'm just so passionate about this topic and being able to talk to Dr. Nicola Rinaldi for a full hour about everything that she's researched and all the time and dedication she's put into spreading the word about hypothalamic amenorrhea is just really magical for me. I actually feel surreal right now. And I hope everyone listening to this learned something new, whether uh, you're one of my friends or someone random that Googled uh, or searched in the podcast bar about hypothalamic amenorrhea and PCOS. I hope you are leaving here with a bit more knowledge and confidence in yourself and your ability to heal and live a really full and thriving, beautiful life. And that's it. That's all I have for now. I don't know what my next topic will be yet, so that's a surprise, but stay tuned and you'll hear soon. Thank you so much again and love you all so much.